the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except for the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. This is the Lord's word for us today. You may be seated. Over the past couple of weeks uh, in this series, House to House, we've been looking at this teaching from Jesus as he teaches his students uh, to share the gospel, to share the good news of the kingdom of God coming into our world. Uh, if you remember week one, if you were with us, we said uh, people who follow Jesus share the gospel because Jesus shared the gospel. And so we're going to follow Jesus. It's going to naturally lead us to do what he did, which was to share the gospel. He traveled around announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. And he used everyday, ordinary people. The 72 students that are here in this story are not named, and they're never named. They're just regular, ordinary folks like you and me following Jesus and sharing the gospel. Uh, Last week, we looked at how Jesus taught them to do that, primarily through the means of hospitality, going into homes and opening up tables and engaging in conversation and offering blessing, and that this was the space in which Jesus himself shared the gospel, and he invites us to do the same as well. Uh, Now, when we start talking about sharing the gospel, uh, there's a whole host of fears that begin to creep up in us. I don't know if you felt that over the past couple weeks. I know this past week in our house church, we were talking about Uh, What are the fears that we have when it comes to sharing the gospel? There's an intimidation factor to this. All of a sudden, there's kind of this list of things that are not quite adequate in me. Like, what if I get asked a question and I don't know the answer to it? Now, what am I supposed to even say to begin that conversation, right? Like, maybe you're over lunch with a coworker, and it kind of feels like maybe this is an opportunity, and then your heart rate starts beating a little bit faster, and you start getting real nervous, you're like, What am I supposed to say that's not going to make it weird, but also helps me talk about Jesus? That's a really intimidating space to be. Or what if someone asks a question and all of a sudden, I don't know the answer. What am I supposed to do right then? This morning, we're going to talk about a couple of encouragements from this teaching from Jesus. In this passage, we see the result of these 72. They did what Jesus did. They went out, they told people about the gospel, they opened up tables and homes, and and things happened. And in this last teaching, there's a few encouragements that they receive that I think you and I can take, uh, particularly if we're feeling intimidated or maybe a little bit uh, awkward or afraid about this idea of sharing the gospel. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to think about what happens? Uh, So if you open up in chapter 10, verse 17, we find these 72. Uh, Some time has passed. We don't know how long it has been, uh, maybe a week, maybe a month. Uh, probably not more than a month because Jesus only was ministering for about three years, but, but they did this thing. They traveled and they come back 
And look at what they say. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. So there's three things I want to show you from this passage that we can take encouragement in as we seek to follow Jesus and share the gospel. The first is this. When it comes to sharing the gospel, don't overcomplicate it. Don't overcomplicate it. These 72 share the gospel, and you'll notice that they are surprised at the result. Like, I think for some of us, when it comes to sharing the gospel, we want a guarantee that when I open my mouth, it's actually going to end well. Like, when I start this train, like, give me the bullet points or give me the questions to guarantee that I get to that moment where they make a decision and I feel great about it. That's what we want. But notice, they do this thing, and Jesus himself told them to do this thing, and they're still surprised at the result. Right? And notice what they say. They say, even the demons are subject to your name. Like, that's surprising, particularly if you were to read Luke chapter 9. Because in Luke 9, Jesus sent the big ones, the 12, the ones that we know, the named ones. He sent them out, and in Luke chapter 9, he explicitly gives them the authority to cast out demons. And so they do. But here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus never mentions that. And so they're like just doing what Jesus did. And what happens? Power. Like demons are being cast out. We're going to talk more about that if you have questions about it. We're going to talk more about that. But, but just there's a surprise factor to this. You see, I think so often we, we complicate sharing the gospel. I say, I need to know the tactics or the questions that I can ask that will guarantee me a result, or at least guarantee me that this interaction is not going to be weird. We want to have the answers and to become experts. But notice what Jesus says. Uh, he rejoices with them in verse 21. He says, In the same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. In fact, the language here of little children is infants or babies. Imagine Jesus rejoicing over you because you're an infant. You're like, I'm at least 17, Jesus. You see, Jesus celebrates the fact that they have a simple, open, honest willingness to do what he said. Like, they don't overcomplicate it. When Jesus says share the gospel, they're like, okay. They're not like, can you give me like an eight-week course to teach me how to do this? When Jesus says share the gospel, they share the gospel. You see, most scholars uh, believe that the apostles, the big 12, were probably in their like late teens, early 20s when they followed Jesus. And so if Jesus calls these 72 babes, you have to imagine that they are younger than that. Or at least they're inexperienced. Or they have a little bit of naivete, or they haven't quite experienced everything. And yet they do what Jesus says, and he praises them and celebrates them for their simple willingness to share the gospel. You might be here this morning, you think, okay, I'll share the gospel, but give me like a 16-week course on apologetics first. Like, give me, like, I'll share the gospel, but first let me read the Bible page to page. Let me get through the whole thing. Or I'll share the gospel when I'm a little bit older, or when I've had a little bit more experience. That's not what Jesus celebrates here. He celebrates the fact that they these young, inexperienced, maybe even immature followers of Jesus, they did what he said and things happened. Right? Like you don't have to be an expert or have a degree or know every question, the answer to every question to share the gospel. Jesus celebrates the fact that they, in their simple, honest faith, don't overcomplicate it and just do what he says. And he rejoices, not just any rejoicing, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. 
This only happens a couple times in the New Testament. This is God himself in the core of God's heart and being celebrated when we are just simply, honestly faithful to follow Jesus and to share the gospel. It's not overcomplicated. So the first encouragement, if you're feeling trapped or you're feeling like you're not experienced enough or you don't know the answers or everything, is just, just follow Jesus and open your mouth. And, and yes, you will be surprised at what happens, but that's exactly the point. Because when we share the gospel, we are not sharing the gospel in and through our own power or our own strategy or our own wisdom. In fact, Jesus says those who think they are wise and understanding actually don't experience this. It's those who are naive enough or, or immature enough or, or young enough to say, I'm going to go do it, and I'm just going to see what happens. That's what Jesus celebrates. So don't overcomplicate it. Now, that's not an excuse for not being like learned or, or trying or, or reading some things, right? But, but just don't over. Sometimes we, get, we overcomplicate it because we really don't want to, right? Like sometimes it's like, I need to learn a little bit more, and it's really just I'm dragging my feet. But Jesus says, go, and they say go, and what happens? surprise. And this is the second thing that we have to take encouragement in. Not only do we not over or not overcomplicate it, we also don't underestimate the power of sharing the gospel. Don't underestimate the power of sharing the gospel. Look at what Jesus says in verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That might be the most intense verse, intense thing that Jesus ever says, right? You're like, what? Tell me more. Now, remember what Jesus taught them to do. He taught them to don't take any shoes, don't take a bag, don't take a wallet. Just go to whoever will receive you, speak a blessing, have a meal, and engage in a conversation. And they did that. And you have to imagine like they're just having regular ordinary meals, they're meeting regular ordinary people, and then they say the kingdom of God has come near to you, like Jesus said. And for them, they probably think, okay, I did that. And this is like an ordinary thing. Maybe it didn't even go well all the time. In fact, Jesus said it's not going to go well all the time. But what actually happened? Jesus said, well, they were practicing ordinary hospitality. Well, they were just caring for their neighbors and going house to house and sharing the good news of the gospel. What was actually happening is Satan himself was falling from the position of power over that home, the position of power over that area, as they just simply practiced hospitality and shared the gospel. And, 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 like, you just think about your life. Like, you're just having, like, maybe a mediocre meal, and you invited someone over, and you're sharing the gospel. What's actually happening is Satan is falling from power in that person's life. You're like, it's just tacos. It's just brownies. It's just an ordinary conversation. And, and the language that Jesus uses here, it, 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 the language, the timing of it, is that as they were doing these things, what Jesus is seeing, he's looking out over the horizon with his Jesus vision. And he sees that as they're going house to house, as they're around tables, what's actually happening is the kingdom of darkness is beginning to quake. And they can't see that. And they don't even, they don't even understand that until they come back and Jesus said, let me tell you what happened around tacos. Let me tell you what happened. Satan was quaking in his boots as you practice everyday ordinary hospitality and share the gospel. Whew. I'll change how you think about Taco Tuesday. Now, what Jesus is showing them is that sharing the gospel with people is actually advancing Jesus' kingdom against the kingdom of spiritual darkness that exists in our world. 
Yeah. Now, uh, I think a helpful paradigm to think about, Jesus believes in the reality of spiritual darkness. In fact, the whole of the Bible believes in the reality of spiritual darkness. Uh, you and I tend to not think that way. We tend to think input equals output. We tend to be kind of material. We think this is what it is. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, in his introduction, uh, he has a helpful paradigm for us to think through with this, right? Uh, because you might think, okay, Satan, demons, this is, it's not Halloween, right, it's just February. What are we actually talking about? Here's what he said in his book. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What he's saying is this kingdom of darkness that Jesus referenced, that he believes, that he sees quaking in its boots as we share the gospel. On the one hand, you could be like, eh, I don't believe that. I'm just a materialist, which means that this world is all that there is. And that's the prevailing worldview that most of us live in today, is that what I see is what I get. What I can observe with my five senses and the scientific method, that is all there is. But that's not how Jesus or the Bible view the world. In Jesus' view of the world, the, uh, the world is material, but it is also more than that. It is overlaid and infused with spiritual reality, spiritual power. And this is how God has made the world, and that's how he made you and me. You know that you're not just a conglomeration of atoms because you have feelings. You long for something. Right? That's part of how God has wired us to be both physical and spiritual. But you also know Right? When you're sick or when you aren't eating well, like your spiritual life is affected. These two things are intertwined and interconnected. Now, in the storyline of the Bible, there is a particular character who's called the Satan. He's actually called the Satan. In fact, in the language that Jesus uses here, it's the. It's a title. It's not a name. I think that's really important to get because oftentimes we think Satan, and we think, okay, that's his name, and we might think red devil with horns. But that's not how the Bible presents this character. This character in the Bible is a spiritual being who was on God's angelic staff team, but rebelled against God. And in the earliest pages of the Bible, we find him drawing our first parents away from God and his kingdom. And so that idea of Satan is actually, it means the accuser or the adversary. That his role and his function is to accuse us and to oppose us, and to stand against God in his way. He does not want what God wants. And he will lure us away in all sorts of different ways. In fact, there's all sorts of hyperlinks in what Jesus says here uh, to what happens in Genesis 3, when Satan, this character, first draws our parents away. And with him, he drew a whole host of angelic beings who then become part of his team and his forces that control much of the darkness of our world. Now, you might hear that and say, okay, that sounds hokey or backwards or like a nice Netflix special. But haven't you realized, don't you see in our world, like how is it that our world can be so evil? Like have you ever thought about how is it that, that our world can be so violent? Or how is it that whole communities and cultures can be taken over by what looks to us as such apparent violence? And think about how did, how did Germany in the 1930s get taken over by this anti-Semitism that, that looked the other way with the Holocaust? How is it that in our country, uh, the, the reality of lynching 
became such a present thing that people looked the other way, even when it happened on a Sunday after church. You see, the reality is evil has a power that is beyond any of us. And we just dabble in it here and there, but the reality is it begins to take over whole cultures and whole mindsets and whole ways of being. And Jesus and the Bible have language for that. That this is called the Satan and his team, this enemy, this kingdom of darkness that resides over our neighbors and over our neighborhoods. And so when we take the gospel into those places, it's not just me trying to sell my neighbor on my ideas. It is engaging in this spiritual battle. And the kingdom of God will not be opposed. It will win. And our task is to simply share the gospel in that space. Now, on the other hand, some of us are in the materialist camp and say, I don't believe in Satan or the demons. Well, Jesus does. Some of us, we get all kinds of weird and afraid about that. Like, we begin to see Satan and the demons behind everything, every little happenstance or every little circumstance. But notice what Jesus says to them. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. You see, the, the understanding, the belief, and the presence of spiritual evil in our world through things like demons and the Satan are not there to scare us. They're not there to cause us to quake in fear. Instead, it is to help us understand what our actual battle is. Jesus says, I will give you the authorities to tread on serpents and scorpions. You're like, but I like scorpions. No one in the Bible likes scorpions. Scorpions and serpents are this picture of evil, of the presence of evil. It represented destruction and pain and suffering. In fact, the fact that Jesus includes this serpent here is a reference to Genesis 3 as the Satan appeared as a serpent. And he says, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Now, if you remember the beginning of Jesus' teaching, he told them to walk barefoot. Just think about that. I mean, that's like just like a fun little, fun little connection there. He says, you're going to tread on serpents and scorpions. And Jesus is like, and the disciples are like, I don't have any shoes on. And Jesus is like, that's okay. It's not about your shoes. It's not about your power. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's instead my authority working in you and through you. That the name of Jesus, the kingdom of darkness falls. And so when we bring the name of Jesus to people, the kingdom of darkness is falling. And so we tread on powers and principalities that keep people enslaved that keep people from the knowledge of God. So he says, do not fear. It will not harm you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of the Son that God our Father loves, Jesus. And the enemy cannot touch you there. And so our practicing of sharing the gospel is not just about sharing information or an idea or a meal. It's engaging in this battle. Now, how will you encounter this as you actually share the gospel? Uh, there's a helpful paradigm from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that I think will help us uh, understand how we encounter this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Because very few of us, as we are going about our day or going about our week and inviting our neighbors in, are going to be treading on literal serpents and scorpions. But we are going to be engaging our world and engaging the mindsets and the belief systems of people. And in uh, chapter uh, 10 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to this church and he says this. 
Uh, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now he's using this language to describe what happens when we share the gospel. We are engaging in spiritual warfare. But as soon as we begin talking about that, you and I, we have in our imagination the warfare of the world. We think, okay, there's war in Gaza, and there's a war in Ukraine, and so what is spiritual warfare? It is taking. It is violence. It is vengeful. It is I'm, I'm imposing myself or forcing myself upon you. But notice what Paul says, we do not wage war according to the flesh. That we do not engage in sharing the gospel and engage in spiritual warfare in a way that looks like the warfare of the world. And I think that's really, really important to get because what often happens is we get a little bit vengeful or a little defensive in our sharing of the gospel or, or someone resists us or mocks us or, or looks down on us. And then we begin to kind of get back into the flesh and we say, you know what, they're a terrible person. You know what, they're the problem. But Paul is saying our battle, the spiritual warfare of sharing the gospel, is not against people, it's against powers. It's not against that person. It's against the reality of spiritual darkness that has kept them blind and kept them enslaved. And when we miss this, we will end up waging the wrong battle. Right? We will end up waging a battle against them or against their belief system, or against the way that they live their lives, rather than recognizing the spiritual power that is at work behind the scenes in their life. As soon as our, our engagement of sharing the gospel becomes about taking, or about imposing, or even about taking back our country, or taking back our community, or, or any kind of violent imagery, we are now engaging in warfare as the world does, not as Jesus does. How does Jesus engage in warfare? through self-sacrifice, through humility, through care, through compassion, through sharing the gospel. And so don't confuse this. I think this is really important to get because, because historically in some, in some contexts and countries, uh, sharing the gospel also came with the empire, also came with weapons, also came with warfare. That's not how Jesus and the, the New Testament teach us how to share the gospel. It's not about engaging in warfare as the world engages it, but rather... Notice what Paul says. Our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He says our primary offense, the primary way where we are going to encounter spiritual darkness is through what he calls strongholds. Now, strongholds uh, are, are this, an argument built up to defend myself against the knowledge of God. That's what Paul says here. A stronghold is a, an argument or an opinion that is lofty, that is actually intended to keep me from hearing about God. All right, this is an opinion that I have, or a habit or pattern of belief that I have. That's actually not about what is real or true. It's just a, a way to protect me from admitting that God is there. And you'll find this all over the place, all around us. The world that we live in is full of these strongholds, these habits or patterns of thinking that are actually more about being resistant to God than what is real. Like if you listen to, uh, for a while I was uh, working with uh, high school and college students, and, and I would always get these like TikTok takedowns. Have you seen the TikTok takedowns? 
Okay, yeah, some of you are on TikTok, that's okay. So like TikTok, you get like two minutes, it's like a two minute video, and it's someone talking about like how they no longer believe in Christianity. Uh, and and, and the, the way the algorithm works is you, is you watch one and all of a sudden your feed is full of all of them. Right? But, but the reality is like, if you were to actually take their two minute takedown and you actually say, okay, what are they actually saying? What are they actually, what do they actually believe? And does it actually line up with reality? Most of this, most of what people are putting out there, particularly in the realm of deconstruction, is not actually reasoned, thought out beliefs, but rather it's a stronghold. It's an argument built up against the knowledge of God. That it's not actually in alignment with reality or what is true. It's not even oftentimes a fair argument. It's oftentimes a caricature or a picture of their experience, not actually about the claims of Jesus in the Bible. And so what is it? It's an argument. It's a lofty opinion. It's, it's there to, to cause confusion and to cause maybe a little bit of, of deconstruction. And, and is this actually true? And, and I know because I, I, I've watched them. I've had people send them to me. Right? And, and it's like two minutes, and you're like, oh, I never thought about that before. But if you were actually think about it, if you were actually, as Paul says, destroy the stronghold, to peel back the layers, you'd find that's actually not a fair argument, one, and it's actually not even about what Jesus said or what he did. It's just about their experience or, or some pain that they've experienced. And so these are all around us, and they're, they're coming at us faster and faster and faster, particularly if you're on social media. But what does Paul say? He says we destroy these lofty opinions. Not destroy the person, but destroy the opinion. To actually think, is this actually true? Is this actually real? Does this actually line up with reality? We're living in a day and age in which we really need to be thinking, thinking clearly and deeply about who is Jesus and what did he teach and what does it mean to follow him because you will find all sorts of caricatures about the gospel, about who Jesus is, about who Christians are. We need to be thoughtful about this. So when an argument comes our way or someone asks a question, right, we're able, not that we have to have all the answers, but we can understand, oh, this is a stronghold. Let me give you an example of this from uh, uh, about a year ago. Uh, over the course of about a week, I was engaging with two different people. Uh, one person, uh, all kind of like orbiting-ish Jesus and, and the church, one person came to me and uh, they were dealing with uh, a past history of like family engagement with Wiccan and witchcraft. Uh, and so they had, they had questions about like amulets and tarot cards and how does Jesus fit into that. Uh, and anytime they, they tried to take a step uh, towards Jesus, there would be some sort of like spiritual darkness that would happen in their family. So I was talking to them for a while, praying with them for a little while, uh, but there was just this resistance. Like they couldn't quite like take the step of letting go of the tarot cards, of letting go of the amulets or anything like that. Uh, and, and the same week, I was also engaging with a person uh, who was kind of open and curious a little bit about our church. And the more I talked to them, they had a specific set of questions, particularly about our church's reading of the New Testament and the Bible as it relates to sexuality and gender. Uh, and so, you know, engaging this conversation, trying to understand their view, answer the questions. And the, the more we went into it, the more intense this conversation got to the point that this person is actually upset with me, angry, frustrated, and calling, calling these beliefs a whole different thing. Now, in the world that we live in right now, the person who is experiencing the spiritual darkness from their history of tarot cards and Wiccan and those kinds of things would be seen as backwards and primitive. Maybe not, maybe not everywhere, but in some, in some contexts. It's not enlightened. 
the person who is coming at me with their resistance to the Bible's teaching on sexuality and gender would be seen as enlightened, as open-minded, as, as actually forward-thinking. Both of them are under spiritual oppression. Both of them are holding on to a stronghold that is resistant to the knowledge of God. And yes, it looks different, but in Jesus' way of viewing the world, both of those are spiritual darkness that has created this barrier for either of them to hear the good news of Jesus, for either of them to be open to the knowledge of God, for either of them to submit and trust in who Jesus is. See, I think we live in this day and age that wants to just wipe away every aspect of spirituality, of spiritual darkness, and then it just becomes a matter of like arguing over, over thoughts and opinions. But that's not how Jesus teaches us to engage this, to recognize that there is a spiritual stronghold there. And so, yes, I destroy that argument. I need to be thoughtful. I need to be engaged. I need to be listening. I need to be understanding the truth of God's word and how he has led me. But also, I need to be prayerful. I need to be humble. I need to be submissive to Jesus and what he calls me to do and recognize that this is a spiritual battle. And so I might get frustrated with that person, but my battle is not with them. Instead, the battle is against the spiritual darkness that they don't even see. See, oftentimes I think we, we have this belief that, that spiritual darkness, Satan and his enemies, they're going to have like this billboard that says, this way to hell. That's not how he works. It is this small step or this opinion that seems lofty, that seems good, that seems like it's in line with how people believe. That's how he does his deepest work. And so to engage in this spiritual battle is to lean in into those spaces and say, let's destroy this opinion while winning the person. And I think this is where we get to the end of Jesus' teaching. Because he ends with this beautiful like prayer, uh, this beautiful like invitation to consider what it is that you and I have. So the last encouragement that this teaching leaves us with is don't lose sight of the beauty of it. Right? Don't lose sight of the beauty of the gospel. Look what Jesus says. I think he's, he, he rejoices with the Holy Spirit. So he's like, this is the inner heart of God for you and me. He rejoices with the Holy Spirit. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What that tells us is this. None of us receive the gospel because we were good enough. None of us receive it because we were smart enough, because we were enlightened enough, because we were educated enough. We receive the gospel by the sheer love and grace of God. That it was his pursuit of us, him sending Jesus to us, and Jesus in his love and grace and forgiveness inviting us into the heart of God that you and I have received the gospel. And so the, the, the primary characteristic of how we share the gospel must be with humility. It must be as people who have received the gospel and we are sharing it with other people. See, if you read throughout the, the storyline of the Bible, you'll find that one of the primary modes of operating of Satan and his kingdom is pride. That was his first fall. That is what he's tempted our parents with was pride. And you'll find over and over again that oftentimes 
Darkness works as people elevate themselves and get really inflated about themselves and get really proud. And don't you know how easy it is to go there when you're sharing the gospel with someone? Right, like, like you're sharing it and then they've got an argument and then before you know you're countering their argument and you like, you've got that, like, that line that you're going to just drop and all of a sudden you're going to win the argument and before long you've been sharing the gospel but you've actually been sharing the gospel by means of the kingdom of darkness. How we share the gospel is indicative of the gospel that we share. And so we share it not as people who have all the answers. And so if you don't have all the answers, that's okay. We share it not as people who have mastered this or, or who, are, who are the top of this, but we share this as people who have received this. And so the primary way that we operate in this is humility. Because after all, in the world that we live in, the world that we live in is so full of ideas and ideologies, people who are full of themselves offering their way of life or their politics or their product or whatever. It's so full of people who are saying, look at me and buy my thing. And so if we're not aware of this, we don't, aren't thoughtful about this, the way that we present the gospel can actually be full of pride rather than humility. When it is actually humility, a humble person sharing the news of what they have received in Jesus, that might actually be a, a cup of cold water in the world that we live in. A refreshing invitation to something different. Not competing in the loud world of ideas and ideologies. Instead, a humble person saying, come receive what I've received. There's a Sri Lankan pastor by the name of uh, D.T. Uh, Niles. Uh, he's a pastor and evangelist who was, who was really involved in uh, the Asian church and building up the Asian indigenous church. And one of the things he said, uh, his famous quote was that sharing the gospel is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. This is all we're doing. Saying, let me tell you what I found in Jesus. Let me tell you about my sin. Let me tell you about my struggle. Let me tell you about who I was when I found Jesus. And gloves off, this is who I was. As Paul said, I was the chief of sinners. Imagine if that was your entry line into sharing the gospel. Can I tell you about the worst thing in my life? Can I tell you about the, the, the time I absolutely failed? And let me tell you about the hope that I found in Jesus. Man, imagine the questions that people would ask. Imagine the way that people would lean in. They heard, oh, you're, you're offering to me something that you yourself have been transformed by. This is how we share the gospel, through humility as beggars telling another beggar where to find food. Anything more than that is probably too much about us and not enough about Jesus. So where do you start with this this week? There's three things, three ways that you can start. The first is this week we're going to begin our prayer challenge. 40 days to the season of Lent where every day we're going to pray and ask God to move. Prayer works. Jesus believed that prayer works. The Bible believes that prayer works. And so we're going to believe that prayer works. And so over 40 days, every day we're going to just take a day, take a prompt, and, and pray that God would move in the life of that one person, or that one household, or that one friend that he's placed on your heart and mind in this season. And every morning we're going to pray. And it may feel stale, it may feel routine, but what Jesus says is, I saw Satan fall like lightning. That's what's actually happening when we do this. And so we're going to engage in the prayer challenge in just a couple of days. The second thing I want to invite you to do is to ask God to humble you. And that is a really dangerous prayer. Because he will. And he will often humble you not through the ways that you want, but through the ways that you don't want. 
say, God, humble me. And he's like, oh, are you, are you sure? <laughs> but he will, and he will use your weakness and your humility to make Jesus great in your life. And the greater that Jesus is in your life, the easier it will be for you to share the gospel because he will just become, he will just be overflowing in your life. And so as you take a step in sharing the gospel this week, ask God to humble you and buckle in because something's going to happen. Lastly, lastly, how do you start? Just share. Just share. Remember, don't overcomplicate it. Don't overcomplicate it. Share. What do I share? You share your story with someone. Say, hey, can I, can I just tell you about me? Can I tell you about my life? I mean, we do this all the time. Like, we just, can I just tell you about what God's been doing in my life? Could be sharing your story. Could be sharing an invitation. All right, maybe you have plans to watch Taylor Swift versus the 49ers and Chiefs tonight. <laughs> share. Share someone. Say, hey, I have, I have a few people over. We're going to watch this. Why don't you come on over? And open up your table. Share an invitation in. Maybe share an invite to church and say, let's go, let's go get lunch after this. Don't overcomplicate it. It may seem ordinary, it may seem every day, it may seem like not a big thing. But Jesus says, when we share the gospel, the kingdom of darkness quakes. And so let's share the gospel together. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. God, help us to see as you see. Help us to see the world as you see the world, to see our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers as you see them, that our everyday acts of hospitality and sharing the gospel might actually be setting them free from spiritual bondage to live the life abundant that you invite us into. So God, give us courage, give us boldness, give us humility, that we might share the gospel as beggars inviting other beggars to find food. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.